surely this man was the son of God. The Roman centurion stands at the foot of three crosses. And he looks up at this first century Israelite man. The skin has been torn away from his body by the flogging and the beating that he's taken. His head is caked in blood where the thorns have been pressed into his scalp. And the body is limp, defeated, dead. Surely this man is the Son of God. Surely this man was the the Son of God. What brings this centurion, this Roman soldier, to make this proclamation? What has he seen? What has he heard? What has he felt that has brought him to this conclusion? Let's walk back a few hours and examine the evidence that Mark lays before us, before the, the church that he's writing to in Rome. And let's ask the question again. Who is this man? Do we agree with the the claim of the centurion, surely this man was the Son of God? Two weeks ago, Ian Jones talked to us about Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed. And Ian gave us the, this moniker for Jesus, the man of steel. As he faced, chose to walk the path of the cross. I'm going to steal and alter Ian's moniker for Jesus. Because the man of steel is, is also the man of stone, the man of silence, and the man of suffering. Because that's where Mark takes us in this account of the life of Jesus, as it reaches its conclusion, it's all about who Jesus is and all about what he's done. And so we turn back into Mark chapter 14, page 1021, if you're using one of the red church Bibles. And we join the mob that have come to arrest Jesus as they take him away from the garden back into the city. They take him before the the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the religious leaders, the chief priests. If they were all there, there would have been around 70 men. And Mark seems to suggest in verse 53 that they are all there in the middle of the night. They're prepared. They're not sleeping. There's something far greater for them to do. They are putting Jesus on trial. And simultaneously, we find Peter. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, Mr. Big Mouth, Mr. Keen, Mr. Enthusiastic, Mr. Foot in Mouth. He's fled the scene, but now he's back. As the mob walks Jesus over, Peter follows in the shadows. He resolves not to give up. And he follows the crowd into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sits himself down by the fire and waits for Jesus. And that's not inconsequential. Peter is brave here. We know that he's just chopped off the ear of the high priest's servant, Malchus. He's 
put himself alongside Jesus before fleeing. He's known, he's been seen, and yet he follows. And what Mark does here is, he tell, as he tells us this story, he makes a, a sandwich. A sandwich between Peter and Jesus. Peter's the bread, Jesus is the, the, the meat. It's not a BLT or a coronation chicken. But what he's trying to do is to show us what's going on here, show us who Jesus is by, by contrasting Jesus and Peter. So, Peter is outside, in the courtyard, and Jesus is inside. Jesus is above, we're told, in an upstairs room, it seems, in the, in the courtroom. And Jesus is, uh, Peter is down below in the courtyard. Jesus faces the opposition of the religious council. He faces many witnesses, false witnesses, Mark tells us, who come and accuse Jesus. They testify against him. They come again and again. Jesus did this. Jesus said that. I was there when Jesus... Did you hear what Jesus did on this occasion? Mark tells us that they are desperately looking for something to put on, pin on Jesus. Because they want to put him to death. And so the first witness stands up. And he says... Well, I saw Jesus, and and he did this on on the Sabbath. And the jury goes, ooh. And the second witness stands up, and he says, oh, but I was there when Jesus said this. And the third witness gets up, and he tries to say that he was there when witness number one at the same event. Unfortunately, he said it happened on a Thursday rather than on a Sunday. And he says it happened to two people instead of four people. And even as these witnesses get up, they they can't even agree with each other. They contradict one another. The evidence is flimsy, unsurprisingly, because it's false. And in the middle of it all stands Jesus as as they seek to undermine him, as they seek to pin him down, as they seek to, to find the evidence that means that they can put him to death. And it culminates with the high priest demanding of Jesus, aren't you going to answer? But Jesus is unmoved. Let's go downstairs, back down into the courtyard where we find Peter. And the inquisition that Peter faces is not from 70 religious leaders and many witnesses. It's from a servant girl. She has no axe to grind, no obvious malicious intent. But she does recognize Peter as he sat by the fire warming himself. The firelight lights up his face in the darkness. Weren't weren't you with that Nazarene? Weren't you with Jesus? I don't know what you mean. Are you even making sense, Peter says? That she's not to be put off. She mentions it to other people. You see that man over there by the fire? Wasn't he with Jesus? Isn't he one of them? No, no, no I'm not. He pipes up. He he can't help but answer back. He's afraid. He's fearful. Finally, a third time, someone nearby says, Yeah, you must be with Jesus. You're, You're a Galilean. Why else would you be here in the middle of the night? 
we all know that you must be with Jesus. And it's at that point that Peter loses it. His language turns blue. I swear, I don't know him. This is Peter who we read only, only a few verses earlier, saying, even if all fall away, I will not. Jesus has said to him, truly I tell you, today, yes, tonight, before the cock crows twice, you yourself will be disowned me three times. And Peter had said, even, after, if, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. This is Peter, whose very name Peter had been given to him by Jesus. He was Simon. But Jesus had said to him, you'll be Peter, which means rock. This is Peter who had recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. And Jesus had said to him, upon you and upon your confession that you recognize that I am the Christ, I will build this church. That's the rock. And in the courtyards, down below, Peter crumbles. This is the sandwich that Mark presents to us. Peter, Jesus, Peter. And it does the same job that a, a black cloth does in a jeweler's when they put the diamonds on him. So the diamond contrasts against the background. So you can see how, how bright, how beautiful the diamond is. Well, as Peter the rock crumbles under the pressure. Jesus the rock, Jesus the cornerstone, stands firm. He will not be baited, he will not be broken, he cannot be worn down by false accusation or malicious intent. Who is this man? One who stands unbroken by the pressure of the mob, the opposition of the ruling powers. When we are weak, when we know and feel our weakness, when we feel it and despair of it, we need to see that Jesus is strong. Jesus, the man of stone, but Jesus also the man of silence, the next part of this account. If we move into to chapter 15. You see, despite the histrionics of the, the high priest, as Jesus responded to him, who are you? Are you really? Despite the condemnation of the council, they were actually powerless to do anything about it. Even as they reached their conclusion of verse 64, they all condemned him as worthy of death. Every one of them. They can't do anything about it. Actually, they shouldn't even have been meeting in the middle of the night. It was against their own laws. And they couldn't condemn a man to death. They didn't have their power, that power. Despite having this power over the, the Jewish people, Israel was taken over by the Romans. Only the Roman governor had the power to condemn a man to death. And so even though they are convinced, and even though they've determined in their own minds and hearts to get rid of Jesus, they have to go begging to Pilate. And so they tie Jesus up very early in the morning, verse 1 of chapter 15. 
the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Who is Pilate? Pontius Pilate, says one of the commentators, he sums it up like this, was a man who lusted for celebrity and status, who put his career before everything, including people and principle. He climbed the ranks. He's now in charge. And Pilate interrogates Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you claiming lordship? Are you challenging my authority in this region? Jesus simply says, you said that, not me. You said that, not me. And Pilate says, look at verse 3, the chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. Then they come. Jesus said this. Jesus claimed that. Jesus did this. And Jesus says nothing. I don't know if you know how hard it is when somebody is making false, false accusations against you just, to, just to, to not just immediately bite back. It's all within me. That's all I want to do if somebody makes, says something that's not true of me. No, that's wrong. No, I can prove it. Let me tell you. No, no, no. And Jesus says nothing. And more than all the accusations that pour forth from the the chief priests, it is this that astounds Pilate. Why doesn't this man defend himself? Maybe Pilate takes that as a slight against himself. Doesn't Jesus know that I have the power of life and death over him? Doesn't he know that I make the decision here? But first with the Sanhedrin, now with Pilate, Mark wants us to see that Jesus is in no way trying to resist what is happening. As the falsehoods mount up, Jesus says nothing. And when he does speak, it's only to bring truth and and ultimately condemnation on those who would wrongly imprison and ultimately execute him. He never says any word in his own defense. Who is this man who is silent when he should be defending himself? Who is this man? He's the one who is utterly committed to the path laid before him to the salvation of people from their sins. He's the man of silence. But thirdly, he's the man of suffering. We've already read at the start of our service, our call to worship from the prophet Isaiah. Five, six hundred years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, this man Isaiah spoke the words of God about a man who would come and serve God, serve the God of Israel. See, Isaiah 52, verse 13 and 14. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, 
His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. A few verses later, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Listen again to the descriptions of what happens to Jesus. The end of chapter 14, verse verse 65. Then some, these are the religious leaders now, then some of them began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And then the guards took him and beat him. Or verse 15 of chapter 15. After Pilate has bottled it, After he's seen the truth and rejected it for for security, he's made a political decision. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. He's been flogged with the, the leather whips, with the bits of bone on the end of them that would dig into the skin and rip the flesh and the muscles with every stroke. And then 15, verses 17, they put a, this is the the guards now, they put a purple robe on him, they twisted together a crown of thorns, set it on him, and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. And all of this, all of it, is just a preamble to the crucifixion. To when they will nail Jesus to the cross. Crucifixion was the the ultimate punishment that the Romans had to exert their authority against those who would come against them. Those who would be a, a, a threat to their rule and reign. And so they would nail a person to to the wooden cross through the wrists and ankles and to take a breath. He would have to pull himself up on the nails through the wrists, push up on the nails through the ankles to gasp for air before slumping back down. So cruel because you cannot fight the inbuilt desire, need to breathe. And so for a few times a minute, for hours on end, Jesus dragged himself up by his flesh, by his bones, raging against the metal, pinning him to the wood just so that he could take another breath. Who is this man? This man who could save other people from illness, from disease, from even from death. but who chooses not to save himself. If he can command a storm to be still, if he can call back a man to life from the the tomb that he's been in for four days, if he can cure disease, surely he can come down from the cross, cause the nails to come out. But he doesn't, though he could. 
He suffers because that is his calling. And he suffers not for his own wrongdoing. As Mark brings to our attention again and again, they can find no fault with him, though they're desperate to. Not for his own wrongdoing, but for the wrongdoing of others. That truth that is exposed throughout each of the trials, there is nothing against Jesus. Who is this man? He's a man of suffering, suffering for others. And so we return back to the centurion. How is it that he comes to this conclusion? Surely this man was the Son of God. Well, we end where we started. Mark, we don't know how Mark knew what this centurion had said. I want to guess that this centurion became a follower of Jesus. Because otherwise, why else would he tell anybody that? But we don't know. We have no evidence for that. But the story does the rounds. This man of Rome, not a lover of Jesus, not a follower of Jesus, maybe somebody who was completely unaware of Jesus up until this point, recognizes that there is something divine about this man. Remember how Mark started his account of the life of Jesus? Let me encourage you to turn back just a few pages. Let's read it together. Page 1002, if you've got the the Red Church Bible. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah the Son of God. That's what this is about. That's why Mark is writing to this church in Rome as they struggle and suffer because they're following Jesus. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. About halfway through Mark's book, this account, we find Peter, here he is again, Proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ. God's promised King. And Jesus, there's this great moment as Peter's eyes are, are open to see who Jesus is. We're immediately disabused that Peter really gets it. As he immediately then starts to tell Jesus off for doing what he's come to do. But he gets that part. Jesus is the, the Christ, the Messiah. But now as we stand at the foot of the cross, we find this other man, not one of the followers of Jesus, not even a Jew. And we hear from his mouth, this soldier, the second part of what Mark tells us is this great news to be shared with all people that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was divine, that that God himself has stepped into this world to, to change it, to save it. God himself involved in the mess. 
This man who was stone-like in his conviction. This man who was silent in the face of false accusation and misleading statements. Who knew that he and he alone could give his life as a ransom for many. We don't know how much of what's gone on before the centurion would have seen or heard. But he's there at the cross. And he sees the mocking claims of the chief priests. He can't save himself. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He hears their taunts. He hears the taunts of the two criminals that are crucified with him, one on his left and one on his right. But he also sees the witness of well, the witness of creation. Because as Jesus is nailed to the cross, a darkness descends upon the land for three hours. This is no eclipse. This is a recognition by the very world that God has made that, that darkness is here. That judgment has come. And nobody could have failed to have seen it, let alone this soldier as he stands there overseeing the execution. What is it about this man that means that the very world recognizes that this is wrong? And he hears the cry of Jesus from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That this man, differentiated from the other two, not by being more impressive, but by his recognition that this is God at work. This man who everybody around recognizes has done nothing wrong. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Jesus cries out one last time. Mark doesn't tell us, though the other gospel writers do, what he says in that last cry. He breathes his last. Normally a crucifixion would take much longer. It was designed to spread out the agony. But Jesus is in control, not the, not the nails, not the cross, not Pilate, not the soldiers, nobody else. Jesus is in control, even as he dies. The man of suffering, the man of sorrows, who suffers not for his own sins, but for ours. Let's go back to Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God stricken by him and afflicted. The centurion would have likely have seen many deaths. But it's this one that stands out. Greater emotional, mental agony than the physical pain. That this man could control the circumstances not be controlled by them. Surely, surely this man was the Son of God. 
And it brings us to this point, if this is who Jesus is, Mark wants us to get to the to this point to say it should have been me. It should have been me. Maybe that's what Barabbas thought. Barabbas, who was on, who's imprisoned and been lined up for the cross because he was a threat to Rome, an insurrectionist. He should have gone to the cross. He deserved to. And yet Jesus goes in his place and Barabbas walks free. Because overlaying this whole account of Mark he's given us is this, that Jesus is not there for himself. He's there for others. And I just want us to, to pause there and say... And ask this question, what sort of God? Because as we seek to share the good news of Jesus in our society, more and more people have got no idea who God is if we talk about God. Our society is becoming a post-Christian society, despite our, our heritage. And we want people to know that there is a God of love, a God who's reached down into this world. But what sort of God are people thinking about if we just use the word God? Well, this sort of God is what we want to point people towards. The Jesus God. What is God like? What does the centurion see maybe even glimpses of? That God is a God who loves others who serves others, who could implement and exact his authority and rule, but instead serves and cares and, and even dies in the place of those who rightly should be rejected. We want to point people towards God. This is where we start. This God, Christ crucified. It's here in this event, as Jesus dies, that we see all the truths of the gospel. The price of sin, the heart of God, the hope of life. In Jesus Christ crucified. Perhaps you're here today and you're looking in saying, what is this church about? What's this message that they are seeking to share? This is where we want to point. This is who God is. This best examples, best shows who God is in relation to us. Christ died for sinners. He took up our pain, bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. Christ died. 
Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, died. That is the gospel message. But this is not the end. Despite the title of the sermon, this is not the end. Black Friday is followed by Easter Sunday. So come back next week. Because death is not the end for Jesus. Death could not seize him. We looked at those words last week as the the guards seize him. And it appears as though they've won as Jesus dies on the cross. The Bible tells us that death could not seize him. Death could not hold him. God is not defeated by death. And in a world marked with death, and marked and marred by the consequences and fear of death. Here we find not Jesus defeated by death, but ultimately Jesus triumphing through his death. Because Jesus comes back. Jesus rises to new life, and if I carry on, I'm going to spoil Luke's sermon for next week. So let me pray, I'm going to sing. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? He is the Messiah, the sent one, the promised king, the son of God. Father, we thank you that you have stepped into this world in the person of Jesus, that you, despite all the reasons that we we alone have given you, that you have rescued us through Jesus. Like Barabbas, we are free because because Christ stands in our place. We can live because Christ died. And we give you praise. And we say from the bottom of our hearts, thank you. There was no hope in ourselves. There is no hope in ourselves, but in Christ, in Jesus, The God, man, there is life for all who will turn. And so, Father, we pray that we would hold out this message. As weird as it may seem to the world, this is our hope. The work of Jesus. The message of Jesus. For we know that you have loved us. Father, help us to love you in return in thankfulness, with grateful hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.